This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. Jury selection is scheduled to begin next Monday in the trial of the former Minneapolis police officer accused of killing George Floyd. At the same time, the Biden administration is backing a police reform bill in the House that would, among other things, ban chokeholds and no-knock warrants. Its name, the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act. Joining me is Jeffrey Fagan, a professor at Columbia Law School. Tell us a little bit about the act. Well, the act is about several things. Um, one in particular is racial profiling, and uh, it specifies measures to eliminate racially disparate policing, particularly racially racial profiling, um, and sets forth a standard of um, uh, disparate impact on particular populations, minority populations, um, as the measure of um, looking to see whether a jurisdiction is violating the prohibition on, on profiling. Um, I think, though, the most important things to me are the police misconduct measures. Um, profiling is a form of misconduct, but the, but the, the measures to try and um, identify officers who are repeat offenders um, with respect to misconduct or excessive force or perhaps lethal force, uh, the creation of a registry to monitor misconduct across the country, uh, the decertification procedures, which I think are extremely important to stop officers from pinging around from one department to the other after they get in trouble. Um, data collections really is built in and it's quite important. We have very little in the way of national data on the kinds of issues that are the target of the George Floyd Act. Um, uh, again, excessive force, racial profiling, uh, repeat, repeat misconduct, and so on. So I think it's a very uh, wide-ranging act. I think it, um, at least at the federal level, uh, it should have some impacts. Now, most of the issues that, that they try and get at are actually state and city level issues or local municipalities. So um, at the very least, this sets the, this, this lights a path, I think, for a fairly uniform response across the U.S. with respect to improving policing and reducing um, police inequities and, and, and police misconduct and uh, ensuring accountability of police to uh, both citizens and to their local governments. How does the act handle racial profiling? Because isn't sometimes racial profiling something that goes on in the officer's head? Well, you know, it's, at the individual level, it's you could say that, yeah, it does go on in the officer's head. He could perceive or she could perceive that an, a particular individual is dangerous or uh, up to some kind of criminal activity. Uh, that's based on perception. And those perceptions um, can be biased, and I think that's one of the issues that they try and get at. Um, I think, though, when you think about um, the way the language is set forth in um, Section 312 of the Act, they talk about really a pattern. And they they talk about um, activities of law enforcement agents in a jurisdiction that have had a disparate impact on individuals with a particular characteristic, and the characteristic is a race, race or gender, but particularly race and ethnicity. So uh, implicitly, they're arguing for a pattern and practice model, which means some kind of statistical analysis overall of the um, actions of police officers with respect to the citizens. Now, I've done that. I was participating in the, the uh, David Floyd trial in New York on, on stop and frisk, um, and I've been involved in other um, um, racial uh, selective, we, we call selective enforcement cases. And it's hard to prove. There's two issues here. One is disparate impact, which is a different standard than, for example, uh, selective enforcement or um, disparate treatment. And I think there'll be a little bit of um, contentiousness in when 
there are efforts to prove disparate impact. It's proven to be in the empirical literature by police scholars to be kind of hard to pin down. It's one of those things where I think everybody knows it's there, but to, to, to say it and to find that race, uh, net of all other factors, is driving the patterns that are observed, um, that's tricky. We all may, we may sense it. It may be the only logical explanation. I think that was one of the conclusions we reached in New York. Apart from the statistical conclusion, we said, well, if it's not race, what else could it be? And I think that um, uh, the access is standard that uh, will lead to some contentious um, fights once we get to litigation and allegations of uh, violations of the act. Um, having said all that, I think that the act sets a, a baseline that would lead to, uh, I think, rigorous and, and, and sweeping um, empirical research to try and identify the patterns in local jurisdictions as well as uh, across the federal agencies. So now you mentioned sort of tracking police officers to see if they repeat conduct. I, I don't think the, the, the I don't think the act specifies tracking particular officers. I think the act specifies recording incidents of misconduct by officers. And then jurisdictions can um, identify within the data um, which officers are um, engaging in misconduct uh, repeatedly and which officers may only be doing it incidentally. And then um, ideally, um, um, the data collection system, the archive, would be able to look at the responses to those by particular departments to see if they're being held accountable. I, I don't think it's a system to, to register all police and follow their their um, uh, their behavior over time and record their misconduct. I think it's an incident-based system to look at uh, particular incidents and to see if there are patterns in there. So my question is, don't police departments across the country already keep track of those officers? It's wildly uneven um, and for, for several reasons. One is just simply the preference of the police departments to invest their resources in keeping track of officer misconduct. Two, a lot of misconduct depends on reporting by civilians to uh, either directly to the police or to a civilian oversight board. And um, uh, some civilians may not want to report. I think there's a legitimate fear of retaliation by police officers if somebody reports an officer for having engaged in excessive force or, uh, or abusive language or um, false arrest or things like that. So um, there's a good interesting example in Chicago. The police department in Chicago does receive complaints. They record a fairly large volume of complaints. But there's also a private organization called the Invisible Institute, and they receive complaints as well. And the private um, organization, uh, Invisible Institute, they receive nearly twice as many complaints by civilians about misconduct by the Chicago police as do the Chicago police. So I think that tells us something about the sensitivity of these archives to willingness of citizens to report to an agency that they may have some distrust towards. When you look at news articles on this act, the first thing you see is that it bans all chokeholds. Are there still police stations around the country where chokeholds are allowed? There's a few. They allow chokeholds under particular um, circumstances, what they call exigent circumstances. But for the most part, they're banned. Now, the bans um, are of questionable effectiveness. And um, if an officer violates the ban in a particular department, whether that officer is sanctioned for violating the ban depends very much on the discipline system that's in place in that department. And often the departments will look at the particular circumstances in which the officer used the chokehold and decide, well, perhaps that officer really didn't have a choice. Now, that's 
hard to prove one way or the other. Um, but in general, I think officers do have a choice. There are many ways to subdue a suspect other than um, risking their life by cutting off their oxygen supply. So um, it's it's a the ban is is well stated. I think it has strong um, expressive value to condemn a particular police tactic. Um, its enforceability will vary from place to place depending on the uh, the urgency that police leadership feels towards this and their willingness to um, make their officers angry by curtailing their activities. So there's it's a, again many of these provisions are complicated by the realities of policing, but. They're all pointing in the right direction to, to increase accountability. Now, does the act just stop all no-knock warrants? I, b- I believe the intent is to ban all, no- all no-knock warrants. Are there certain instances where a no-knock warrant is needed? You know, it's an interesting question. And, and I think, well, let's put it this way. It does ban no-knock warrants. I would guess that that somewhere uh, north of 75%, perhaps closer to 85 or 90%, of warrants can be served without a no-knock provision. Um, it's possible that it could be as high as, as, as 95 or 98 or 99%. Um, we don't have enough research on, on this question to answer um, your question and the criticisms of police that you do need to keep that possibility. And again, it's one of the things that, that has strong expressive value, but um, I think we need, this is an area where we really need some research to say to say just how far should the ban go so qualified immunity just explain what qualified immunity is and what this bill would provide according to the act very little of it will survive if any qualified immunity essentially is um uh, relieves officers of liability for having engaged in um, misconduct kind of as simple as that. If they engage in excessive force, uh, if they engage in false arrest, um, if they engage in some kind of um, racial profiling, for example, that, that leads to some harm. When an officer is found, when an officer is found to have violated the law, whether civil or criminal, their quali- the qualified immunity provisions relieve them of, of any responsibility for the acts that they took, that they engaged in. And that includes relief from monetary damages um, and, in some instances, relief from criminal prosecution. So this would eliminate qualified immunity? That's right. It would hold officers' feet to the fire. This is a federal federal bill. So, I mean, how much of this will be enforceable at the state level? Well, this is an interesting question because some states have their own statutes on qualified immunity. And there have been... Um, not surprisingly, a number of court cases on qualified immunity in the last couple of years. And there's some very, very strong, um, well-thought-out um, uh, appellate court opinions on this with respect to the actions of individual officers. But but there, um, most of those cases involve um, allegations of violations of federal law. If there's a case which involves violation of state law, that's going to lead to a different um, possibly a different um, um, standard in the courts to determine whether qualified immunity applies. It depends on how the state statute's written. But there is federal case law that, that's, that sustains qualified immunity, depending on the, depending on the statute and the circumstances. Okay. Let's give an example. You know, we, don't, we don't really know the parameters. The courts haven't really settled on the parameters of it. There was just a case in, um, I believe it was in Texas, of a negligent correctional officer who um, allowed a person to suffer um, 
uh, illness um, and um, some beatings at the hands of, of guards and inmates um, in while confined. And the courts, the lower courts there um, found um, the officer, um, uh, gave the officer qualified immunity for any damages. The appellate court um, didn't. And um, uh, they they were going to, they essentially they said there are limits to qualified immunity. And it was an interesting opinion in, in the courts, but it did say that you know, there, there are boundaries on it. The boundaries are a little bit porous. And the boundaries are really hard to, to, to see as a clear um, uh, categorical line, um, but there are boundaries on it. But for the most part, I think this is going to make it much more difficult for officers to claim qualified immunity and for the courts to grant it to them. And as far as the rest of the act, so if it passes, it would be against federal law to, let's say, use a chokehold. So the officer would have to be charged in a federal right. court. That would put the federal government in in the position of doing a lot of policing of the police? Well, I view it now. I mean, the Department of Justice um, has mechanisms by which they can order police departments um, following a a civil rights investigation to undertake particular activities to remedy acts of uh, civil rights violations. These are called consent decrees, and they were dormant for the most part under the um, Trump administration. Uh, They were fairly common um, under the Obama administration. Less so under the Bush administration, but but probably more so than any other administration during the Obama years. And I'm quite sure that given the the nominees for um, uh, civil rights division of the Department of Justice, this this um, activity will be revived. So I think there is a mechanism that's going to be reinvigorated, strengthened in the, in the Justice Department to pursue these kinds of investigations. So yes, there is some element, some aspects of um, of uh, federal oversight of police departments, and they will be. I think expanded somewhat under the. They would be expanded with or without the George Floyd Act. Let me make me clear about that. But the George Floyd Act gives it kind of a foundation and a, a sort of a normative or um, political um, political rationale to um, um, more aggressively uh, oversee the police activity. A version of the bill passed the House last year along partisan lines, but it went nowhere in the Senate, which was then controlled by Republicans. What do you think its chances are in the Senate this time around? Well, I think we can probably count noses in this case. And I, my guess is that for the most part, there may be some tinkering with the act in the Senate version of the act. And that tinkering would be around the margins of police accountability. And uh, it might lead to some concessions by some Democratic senators. I can imagine Senator Manchin, for example, coming from a more conservative state. Perhaps Senator um, Cinema from from um, uh, Arizona, coming from a more conservative state, having a few qualms about certain provisions of the bill. So there might be some tinkering around the margins, but I think the main thrust of the legislation will pass. Now, now that's a prediction, and I'm very bad. I'm a very bad gambler. We appreciate the prediction anyway. Thanks so much for being on the show. That's Professor Jeffrey Fagan of Columbia Law School. A federal judge in Texas extended an order blocking President Joe Biden's plan to halt deportations of undocumented immigrants for 100 days. Federal Judge Drew Tipton, a Trump appointee, granted Texas's motion for an injunction blocking the planned freeze on removals until the case is resolved, which could take months or even years. Joining me is Leon Fresco, a partner at Holland and Knight. Leon, the judge wrote a 105-page order. What was his reasoning here? 
Well, in the end, what this judge was saying is that just like other programmatic changes that have occurred that have been enjoyed by the courts, that here, this memo that was done by the Biden administration that was specifically instructing ICE not to engage in certain removal operations in order to remove people from the United States was a programmatic change that needed to occur through the notice and comment process and so violated the INA and also that it violated different agreements that had been in place with different states about how the enforcement of immigration law could occur and also violated the requirements that the president actually enforce the laws. And so with all of those Results, the court enjoined this memorandum, which actually has some kooky results, but in the end just says that this memorandum itself can't actually be enforced. So not going through the comment procedures is something that was often used against the Trump administration. So is this judge using the same kind of reasoning here? The doctrine itself upon which the decision was based upon is the typical doctrine that you would use to overturn one of these presidential memorandums. The key here, however, is that in the end, this is a memorandum about how the president is going to enforce immigration law. And so even if this particular memo is stricken, it doesn't really change the fact that on a case-by-case basis, ICE can't be forced to deport specific people. There's no lawsuit that anybody's going to be able to file that's going to say, you must deport every single person you encounter. That's the president's discretion. That's literally in the statute that nobody can sue to take away that discretion. And so all this does is just eliminate the memo as a basis for governing how this ICE discretionary process works, which is why the Biden administration subsequently issued another memo that said, If you're going to engage in operations against people other than serious criminals, you have to get X many layers of approval, which basically procedurally accomplishes the same objective as saying, don't remove people. The Texas AG was tweeting, victory, et cetera. So the victory may be the legal victory, but on the ground, it doesn't make that much difference. Correct. It's a victory in paper only, but not in substance, because the paper itself, the memo itself, is gone, so that no one can cite to that memo as a basis for why a removal shouldn't occur. But if an ICE agent has to go through many layers of review in order to engage in an ICE operation, what will inevitably occur is that those contexts that the memo does permit or doesn't permit for a removal will be inculcated in the agency such that whenever somebody tries to go through those layers of review, they will be told this is not an acceptable operation for a removal, and that goal will have been accomplished in the same manner. So that may be the reason why the Biden administration hasn't said that they're going to appeal this decision to the Fifth Circuit. Right. In the end, it's really much ado about nothing because If you are organizing a prosecutorial discretion regime, that regime can be done without needing a memo like this. The point of that memo was because on day one of the Biden administration, you needed a very broad memo like that, which essentially said don't deport anyone, because there was no one there at these agencies yet to inculcate the officers about what the new enforcement priorities were. 
Now people are slowly being installed. Ali Mayorkas has been confirmed as the DHS secretary. There are political appointments that are moving into these agencies that do not require Senate confirmation. And those individuals can begin to say to the people at ICE, here are our priorities, and so you should not approve a removal that does this or this or this. And that doesn't need a memo that says don't enforce the immigration law, which was sort of the day one memo just to stop any removals that were imminent at that time. And the judge's opinion didn't touch on the agreement that the Trump administration made with Texas and some other states. Well, in the end, the agreements were not necessary to invalidate this decision because what was ultimately necessary was just this issue that this was a programmatic change that needed to go through the formal rulemaking process if it was going to be implemented. And states don't, in the end, have standing to say that the federal government should deport X person. That just is not a thing in the U.S. law. And so from that perspective, that wasn't something that was going to be able to survive the Fifth Circuit or Supreme Court review. And so that's why I think you don't see the emphasis there. Leon, you said that the judge's action will have some kooky results. Tell us about them. They result in some very unique consequences, which is just that this memo itself can't be enforced. So you can't say to people, don't deport anyone on the basis of this memo. But there's nothing about this case being victorious for the state of Texas that is likely to lead to even a single additional person being removed or detained because the processes that the agency has put in place now have made it clear that here are the kinds of approval you need in order to begin a removal action or to finalize a removal action. And when those approval sources are procured, you're not going to get that approval unless it's a serious criminal or national security case. Let's turn to what's happening now, because there are reports that Mm -hmm. there have been thousands of unaccompanied minors coming through the border. Border Patrol agents are apprehending an average of more than 200 children crossing the border without a parent every day. But nearly all 7,100 beds for immigrant children maintained by the Department of Health and Human Services are full. So what's happening at the border? So there are multiple issues that are happening at the southern border. One is with regard to asylum seekers, and one is with regard to unaccompanied children. So for unaccompanied children, the Trump administration, at the final days of the Trump administration, had actually won a decision that said, that what's called Title 42 of the code, which is the code having to do with the CDC and disease exclusion, permitted the Trump administration to exclude young people, unaccompanied minors, from the United States uh, because of COVID and the COVID crisis. The Biden administration decided that it would not use this COVID authority to exclude unaccompanied minors and would instead process unaccompanied minors the way They had traditionally been processed under the Flores Settlement Agreement, which is that an unaccompanied minor gets to come into the United States and make a claim for either asylum relief or trafficking relief or what is called special immigrant juvenile status. The complication is that when an unaccompanied minor comes into the United States, they need to be housed in a shelter that is run by the Office of Refugee Resettlement until the Office of Refugee Resettlement can determine that the adult that's coming to pick up 
that miner isn't some human trafficker or smuggler or terrible individual, but is instead a committed caretaker. And so the facilities that are usually overextended for this purpose here not only are overextended, but have to be at about 25% capacity due to the COVID crisis. And so this is why you're seeing all of these new facilities opening up, including this one in Carrizo Springs, Texas, is because there's going to need to be increased capacity if the unaccompanied minors are actually going to be allowed into the United States as opposed to excluded using the CDC COVID exclusion authority. So are more people coming in since since Biden's been president? So the numbers are at an uptick. They're not yet at the crisis levels that we've seen in the past, but there is some concern that the Department of Homeland Security is citing that those numbers by May or June could get up to those levels. And the question is, if they get up to those levels, will the Biden administration change course and use this Title 42 authority again to exclude people from the United States? That's going to be very interesting to see. And the other change that was made was ending what is known as the Remain in Mexico or the Migrant Protection Protocol Program, which was a program that required anybody seeking asylum to entertain their claims from Mexico and not from inside the United States. The Biden administration has said that people, not new people, but people who were previously waiting in line can come in on a controlled basis of a few hundred people per day to come in and make their claim from inside the United States. And so the worry is that if enough people misinterpret that action, meaning they think it does apply to new people or it will apply to new people, that more people will try to come in through the border. Are people coming in now, are they going through an immigration hearing and then released until what you know used to be called catch and release and then released until a court date? How is it being done? Well, what's happening is the queue that had been created for this migration protection protocol of several thousand individuals waiting for hearings inside of Mexico instead of inside the United States, they're going through that queue and they're assessing who has serious legitimate claims. And a few hundred of those individuals are being led into the United States. They're being quarantined for a specific period of time in facilities that are being implemented for this quarantine. And then, yes, they are being released into the United States to make their claims. And so this is why you see the protestations from uh, former President Trump about this, because he did not want that to occur. And the Biden administration said, but the humanitarian nightmare that was happening on the Mexican border cannot be justified under asylum law principles. And so this is why this needed to be accomplished. And so you just have two completely different philosophies on this issue of uh, processing asylum seekers on the border. The immigration bill that's been proposed in the House, is that Biden's immigration bill? Does that have what Biden wants in it? Correct. That was the bill that Biden actually wrote with the administration in consultation with Senator Menendez and and Congresswoman Linda Sanchez in the Senate and the House, respectively. And that bill is what I would say there are two parts to the usual comprehensive bill. There's the bill that fixes the legal immigration system and provides benefits for people here without status. And that's usually coupled with significant increases in enforcement to prevent future waves of illegal immigration. And so this package only has the first part of it. It doesn't have the second part of it because the idea is, well, if Republicans want to negotiate, 
then they can they can say what they want the second part of this bill to be. But that strategically wouldn't make sense for Democrats to insert whatever language they think is good on enforcement, given that whatever they do may not be deemed acceptable to Republicans anyway. So the idea is you get what the Democrats want in the bill out there, and you see if there are Republicans who are willing to engage and say, I will accept this if you give me these changes. The focus has been on the Dreamers. What's their path under this immigration bill? Well, I think you'll see in the middle of March, the House vote on a number of provisions. They'll see if they can vote on this bigger bill, but they'll also vote on a bill for Dreamers, on a bill for people who have been here for decades with temporary protected status to give them lawful permanent residence, and a bill to help farm workers who have been here for several years with undocumented status to give them legal status as well. And then that will shift over to that's where Senator Durbin is trying to lead a process to determine are there 10 Republicans who will agree to any immigration changes for anybody for any reason. And that's going to be where the action really is, is what can you get 10 Republican senators to vote for on immigration if there's anything. Trump had several immigration cases before the court, have all those cases been taken off the track by Biden's administration or, or not? Yes. Almost the vast majority of those cases have either been stayed or have been dismissed, such as the border wall case and the public charge case, because those cases are, you know, the Trump and the Biden administration is saying they're taking a different direction than the one that the people in the lawsuit were suing about so that there would be no need for the Supreme Court to come in. There is one case that's very interesting about whether people on temporary protective status can actually get green cards, where it looks like that case will go forward. And the Biden administration may adopt the same decision that the Trump administration had adopted, that people on temporary protective status shouldn't be able to get green cards. But we'll, we'll wait and we'll see on that one. Thanks for being on the show, Leon. That's Leon Fresco, a partner at Holland and Knight. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law Podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. I'm June Grosso. Thanks so much for listening. And please tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Eastern right here on Bloomberg Radio.